delighted to be joined by Jonathan Norcroft of the Sunday Times football correspondent. Mourinho inflicts pain on Pep. You were there at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, Jonathan, to the top on Saturday. What were your overriding impressions from that performance from Jose Mourinho's magnificent mm. men, as he called them? Well, it, it was Jose's perfect day, wasn't it? It was uh, celebrating a year in charge with a clean sheet, victory over his greatest nemesis, even made a substitution that produced a goal. And uh, I came away thinking Spurs are the real deal. They're real, really contenders this season. And over to you, James Ollie, the senior football writer for ESPN. You were the first to break the news from the foot future of football forum finally got that right James the big thing everyone wants to know are fans going to get into the game before the end of the year well it will depend on the science to some extent and how and how lockdown goes over the next um, few weeks but I think there is certainly a drive within government now uh, having had the desperate financial situation of many EFL clubs laid out to them um, to really make that a priority if they can. And Martin Lipton, the chief sports reporter and VAR aficionado for The Sun. A lot of controversy again this week. The referrals particularly getting a lot of attention. Um, Andy Dunn here, a good little headline there. Ollie gets coot assists. Were VAR right to make Coot go to the referral screen or have they made clear and obvious another question mark? I think all we've done is turn something that was marginally opaque into something that is utterly unclear. Nobody knows what's going on. I don't think it's beneficial and I don't think anyone has got a clue where we stand. James, you were also in the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. That's really kick off there. How impressed with you have you been? Have you been with the progress of Jose Mourinho? Has he changed your mind? <laughs> well, I think the question really is: Has he changed? And I, and you know, I, I've seen a lot of sort of to suggest that he's this sort of softer character. And obviously, the Amazon documentary maybe showed a, a different side of him, certainly in terms of interacting with his players. And I think that there has been a shift in the sense of, you know, particularly at Chelsea when he was maybe at Zenith there, that, you know, he had a very tight group knit um, selection of players. And then anyone who wasn't in that was kind of ostracised and would never play again. We've seen with Ndombele, though, for example, that you can kind of come in from the cold now, that he is prepared to give uh, players a second chance who he maybe wasn't sure about the first time around. But, you know, it's still classic archetypal dogged Mourinho when the big games come around and I think maybe the thing that we've learned is maybe that still works maybe that is still relevant in this in this day and age I think we sort of thought that he was outmoded that you know the more progressive Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, the Gagan Press, the Tiki Taka that kind of style of football had really moved the game on from where Mourinho could be able to shut those teams down really but I think the fact that there are no fans inside the stadium actually helps play that way because, you you know, it, it's sort of a mixture of jeopardy and um, trepidation and a bit of fear would be creeping into that atmosphere at nil-nil and even at one-nil when they're trying to defend the lead and they're kind of camped on the edge of their own box. But so maybe in this sort of sterilised environment, Mourinho's kind of found a, a, a new lease of life almost that this sort of type of football can actually can actually work and hey look they're top of the league and and they've beaten one of the favourites for the title so um, they have to be in the mix now. Is Pep too predictable now? It's, it's going to be the question for City I mean the, the, the idea that Pep Guardiola signing a new contract wouldn't shake put fear through the rest of the Premier League 
He said that like a, a year or two ago, it'd be ridiculous. But the news came out this week and, and I, for one, thought that's great. That's great for the game here. But I didn't think, wow, that, that means City are going to go and win a lot more Premier Leagues because he's got so much work to do. And, and as you say, Carrie, the, the other uh, coaches know how to play against City um, now. I, I, the thing that strikes me watching the, the, the Man City games is how reliant they've become on Kevin De Bruyne. That's partly because he's such a fabulous player. But the Guardiola great teams were real collectives. They were sides that, you know, even the Barcelona side, it wasn't all about Messi. You could shut down Messi, but Iniesta and Xavi and, and, and uh, David Villa, they, 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 would, they would hurt you. Um, Man City at the moment look like if you shut down Kevin De Bruyne, the rest of the game isn't good enough. And all those things that you can do against Guardiola sides, um, you know, forcing them wide because they, they don't cross and score goals from headers, for example, giving them the ball, but, but breaking on them quickly, they're going to get you goals, even having improved the defence, and he has improved the defence. So at the start of you know, the next three years in charge, there's a lot of surgery for Pep Guardiola to do, and I don't think they're going to be ready to win the title this season. Haven't we seen more than anything what every City fan was telling us for 10 years of how vital David Silva was 100%. to the team and what an outstanding 100%. player he was? Without him, they lack the extra magic sparkle. The only sparkle comes really from um, De Bruyne, as, as Jonathan said. Also, Aguero. Aguero is a goal every game. If, because even if he doesn't score it himself, his movement creates a space for somebody else to score. And the problem that City do have is that Aguero has been increasingly hurt by injury. Is he going, if he does come back into the team, is he going to be able to play more than two or three games on the spin without getting injured again? And is he going to engender the same fear he did 18 months, two years ago? And for City, I hope he does, because I think he's, a, he's an outstanding player. So, Cat Among the Pigeons, I interviewed Pep Guardiola last night. Everyone was in the press conferences. We've all seen them. But he, as much as he said, we've had, we, I think they had scored 27 goals by the start of yesterday's match. Last season, they've only scored 10 goals this so far this season. He, he was confident those goals would come. He seemed quite, he wasn't happy, but he seemed quite relaxed about it. There I look to Barcelona. Another defeat for them. Mm. Lionel Messi, can we start licking our lips? Does the prospect become ever greater? Pep signed on again. He needs surely back up in those areas. I think it's inevitable that he will move to City in the summer. And let's be honest, if there's anyone who doesn't want to see Lionel Messi playing in the Premier League mm. for Manchester City or anybody else, they are not football fans. It's also interesting, though, that Guardiola signed a two-year deal, I think, because we're talking about Aguero. Can he still do it at 32? Well, Messi's... How old is Messi now? 34. Yeah. 34. So we're kind of saying, well, we're going to replace effectively... I mean, if he plays through the middle, that is, I suppose he could play out wide. But, um, you know, signing Messi would be amazing. I would love to see him in the Premier League. Don't get me wrong. I agree with everything that Martin just said. But obviously, it's not a long-term solution. That is a pep. You're staying on for another couple of years. Here's, you know, the man you'd love to manage again more than any other for those two years. Where that would leave City after that, well, that's a question for another day. But I think the fact that Guardiola's only signed for another couple of years and Messi's clearly unhappy once out of Barcelona, 
it, yeah, I mean, it, it's everything is pointing to that happening. But yeah, I think Martin's right. It would be it would be next summer when he's out of contract, and and the deal can be a lot more simpler than it would be um, maybe even in January. So in the no panel confirmation, Messi arrives in the summer to Manchester City. Are we going with that, Jonathan? I'll go with that. Um, and uh, like like the, the lads, I, I you know, can't wait to see what a delicious prospect. But just to just to be slightly down on City once more. Even Lionel Messi isn't gonna alone isn't gonna be the answer because we've seen with Barcelona that, and we've seen with Argentina over the years, even a player as miraculously good as he is cannot do it alone. I'm not saying that it would be a one-man team with Messi. Of course, it'd be De Bruyne. I think Ferran Torres, for a positive, he's an incredible talent. I think he will really be one of the world's best players. So there is there is something there, but they're gonna need more than just Messi, and and I think Martin put his finger on it with the loss of uh, David Silva, um, that, that extra creativity, that, that spark has gone a little bit in, in the middle of the pitch. And, and that is, and I don't think Foden's going to be the replacement. He's a different type of player. So that's another area to, to look at. James, uh, Pep Guardiola is saying that the handball rule against them uh, went against them um, in the Champions League. They actually suffered a penalty and then it doesn't go for them this time around, because again, because the rules have changed once again. Does he have a point? There have been so many rules, rule changes, it's almost double jeopardy for teams now. Well, I think the one at Spurs was, was the correct decision. I think he does handle it. I think he does make his body bigger with his hands to try and, to try and control the ball. So I, that, I don't think he's got a complaint there. Um, I think, yes, they've messed around with the handball rule far too much. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we had a period where you've got different rules in different competitions. It's just, it's crazy to me. I, I don't understand how you can expect players to know and adjust from a Saturday to a Wednesday, what the threshold is for handball and what, and, you know, and what isn't. I can see Martin's already itching to get in, so I'll turn the floor over to him. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, the, I, the IFAB power brokers are meeting this week. No big decisions on the handball rule will be made, but the Football Association will be able to put their view forward very firmly that they do not like this handball rule. That's if that is the FA's position, because you never know with the FA. They're reluctant to actually make any um, recommendations for changing the law. Clearly, there's a lobby which has been led by Alexander Seferin uh, at UEFA. They're more concerned about defensive handballs than attacking ones. There seems to be an acceptance that if you handle the ball in the build-up to a goal, that's a handball. It's cut and dry, black-white. Therefore, the, uh, the goal yes, he gets ruled out under any interpretation. That's just the law. But I think they feel that some of the uh, handball decisions against defenders have been unfair. The key one that made this become pertinent, I think, was the one that Chelsea got against Wren, which was ridiculous. Even Frank Lampard didn't think it was a penalty. The ball was not going towards the goal. It deflected up. It hit the player's arm because of the deflection, not because of his arm being out that shouldn't be a penalty and wouldn't be a penalty in the Premier League uh, now. Whereas the one yesterday at West Brom, for, for West Brom, his arms outside his body, he's turned his back, he's blocked the ball, it's a penalty. Um, there's no way around that. You know, Eric Dyer against Newcastle, no one thinks it's a penalty. The laws say it is, you've got to give it. There has been clearly a change, uh, which the Premier League got the dispensation from IFAD, the game before the break at... Uh, at Man City, the ball's travelled 15 yards. It's a penalty. He put his arm out. 
there's no way that any referee in any competition wouldn't give that as a penalty. I don't see why why Klopp was moaning or Gomez was moaning. Clear cut penalty. The one on the same day, Leicester v Wolves, I think is more of an argument, but not the one at, at City against Gomez. But I do think then there's it's close range shots and crosses, particularly shots actually, because if it's a cross, the defender knows he's trying to cross it. Shots are different. Shots are you know, come out of nowhere. But crosses, if a winger's going down the, the, the wing, he's going to cross the ball. So the onus is on the defender to keep his arm out of the way. There's going to be tweaks, clearly. No one's entirely happy. But the basic law is going to stay. That's not going to change. The one thing we've been talking about, and we'll come to the excellent reporting um, leading the agenda, the newspapers this week on dementia. But one thing I think many people cannot believe football hasn't caught up with is rolling subs for head injuries. That's something that will be trialled by some nations in Europe. It's something the English FA want to be seen as the forefront, and that could come in as early as January. Is that right, Martin? That's correct, yes. This will be concussion substitutes. But you won't be stuck with the three, or it might be five, actually, by then, but we'll see a substitute. You can make an extra sub. But also, the opposition team who have not suffered the concussion injury, are also able to make an extra substitution. So it tries to stop people trying to game the system. Jonathan, we talk about dementia and the long-term impact of heading a ball, but in terms of head injuries and players coming off, we know how dangerous that can be. Why is football so far ahead behind this, and does England have to be at the forefront of it? And it's extraordinary that we're, we're talking about it in this day and age and, and, and how far football is behind um I, I think this is probably the only sport where you do use your ball, only ball sport where using the head i suppose with the ball is, is, is an integral part of the game and i get and graham soonest actually in, in my paper the express is i think something that um football traditionalists probably feel that heading is so integral that taking it out of the game um would, would change football irrevocably but you're going to talk about the greater good, and the greater good is 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 preventing the terrible um, dementia scourge that that we're seeing happening with former players. England does have to be in the forefront of it because of the sheer um, the sadness of, of 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 the the fate of the World Cup winning squad of '66, and 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 how big a part dementia is playing at the moment um, for that generation and 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 in the game here. Um, so. Martin's right that the health of players has to come first. Everything else has to follow from that, whether that's tweaks to heading or substitutions or whatever. Um, the, the priority has got to be uh, making this a safer game, especially for kids coming and playing it. Those who suffer most are those who stop playing, you know, going for, for the next 20 years, it's those who stop playing over the years who are going to be exposed to, to the risk. So we've got to look after them. And I think minimising heading in training is one thing. But I think naturally, at the highest level, there will be less heading of a ball. And I will just draw attention to the campaign in the Daily Mail and a report from Nick Harris, James Sharp and Cara Sloman as they continue their excellent reporting on this, revealing that they say the dark legacy of the 66 World Cup glory, that 42% of the top flight players in England in the 1965-66 season were found to have neurodegenerative diseases as 
a factor. James, um, another reporter that's done so much on this, Jeremy Wilson also reporting today that 30 new cases for dementia charity this month. The PFA have asked for heading to stop in training urgently. The FA recommend and set boundaries on this now, as they have done with their joint study with the PFA for months now from um, age groups below the age of 18. But is it a bit late for the PFA to be urgent, urging urgency when they're not actually really coming up with big figures or big ways to support those players impacted? Well, the, look, I mean, the PFA as an organisation tends to be overtly reactive to to anything. They're not they don't they don't proactively deal with 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 very much in the game at all. So it's only when you know the newspapers or or, or I mean the FA did their own study into the dementia as well. It's only when when external sort of forces, if you like, raise these issues, suddenly the PFA appear out of nowhere and say, oh yeah, no, we agree with this or no, we should definitely be doing that. Um, so I think that the PFA's um, ability to to uh, impact positively issues in football is is a separate you know problem in itself. Um, I can only echo what the other guys have said about this. I think it is something that obviously needs to be dealt with. I, I think it probably falls into the category of you know the, the sort of machismo element to it because mm. there's no it's not it's not a you know you don't tear a muscle you don't you know tear the skin you, there's no obvious immediate injury from this and concussion clearly when you know in in the sort of um, gray areas of concussion where players might think they can carry on it's about showing strength it's about you know not wanting to give away any weakness to the opposition and there needs to be a, a sort of shift in the mindset to recognize the immediacy of the problem and obviously the long-term effects that it can have. Jonathan um, what's your opinion on this because there is the suggestion um I spoke to Mark Bollingham, the um, chief executive of the Football Association, and he said we won't be suggesting that there should be any reduction in heading balls at senior and professional level until we've conducted more research into the fact that we know that footballers are more likely to die of a neurodegenerative disease. But is that because they've got greater fitness levels and, and live longer and don't die of heart attacks or heart failure or cancers because they are, have been more active. But that's a, a large wave of research to be done before any action is taken. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'd have thought the way to do it would be a, a ban on heading and training to start with, then do your research, you know, safety first. Again, there's enough, um, there's enough evidence to flag up a problem. Um, we know that there are many concussions every time you, you, you head a ball. Um, we also know from health concerns in other areas of life that you can marshal medical evidence to, to make whatever argument you want. Tobacco companies did it for years. Um, we, we know that you know boxing still continues. And the fact is that if you give sports men and women the chance to participate in, in their dream sport, even if it's dangerous, they will do it because the young people who, 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 who you know got a dream and want want to want that that's what they want to do in their life so um you know it, it's legislation that has to protect the players is what i'm trying to say that that players will if asked if it's part of the game will will want to do it so the only way to do it is to, to take it away i i think you could at least ban it in um training or as david moy suggested this week why can't we have a, a training ball why can't we have a a different type of you know softball that if we must practice heading, that's what happens. To, 
I, I, I can see that to just remove it from the game straight away is, is a huge and drastic step, but there are things that could be done before then, surely. The other big story that has monopolized our industry over the last few weeks, and actually in your newspaper, as you write, um, Jurgen Klopp saying the five sub rule needs to come in because of, con because of congested fixtures, the injuries to players, the long-term fatigue to players could be as big a health crisis. How did you feel about that comparison? Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a slightly odd comparison in the sense that I think we're I think we're talking about mortality with with concussion and dementia, and I'm not sure if that's exactly the same. But I, I do I do get what Jurgen's saying. His point is that we're asking players. Uh, and it's not just this season, but this season is, is exemplifying a problem that's been going on for, for quite some time, that we're just asking players to play more and more, and we're playing higher and higher intensity football. So the athletic demands on their bodies are just getting greater and greater, and, and you cannot keep doing that without risking some damage to them. So the point I think he was making was that in the same way that nobody talked about dementia or nobody talked about risks with heading 50 years ago they just expected players to do it we are expecting players to um perform all sorts of, of physical feats um without really thinking about any consequences and i think what he's talking about really is that we just don't know but but asking players to to shoulder the workload that they're doing now could just could risk all sorts of long-term consequences i mean you see former players um from the sort of 50s and 60s who've had knee injuries. And, and you know, in those days, the surgeries weren't the same, that they just shot cortisone into the joints or whatever. And, and those guys struggle to walk and, 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 and have those sort of problems now. So I think that's the kind of thing he's, he's getting at. Something needs to protect the players because we just, we're, we're, uh, we're, player welfare again is last on the list is what Jürgen's trying to say. We do understand those concerns, James, and, and the managers met um, last week. The um, board will meet to actually put through a final vote on it, top hinting that if the managers got to vote, it would be certain to have the five sub rule implemented. What do you think, what impact do you think that has on the game and the Premier League, which is normally so tight and so unpredictable? Does it take that opportunity away for the lower clubs at the bottom of the table? Well, of course it does. I mean, this this skews the game in the favour of the big clubs. It has to, because, you know, I, I, I totally understand the argument about player welfare. But the reason we're talking about five subs is because at a higher level, with UEFA, FIFA, the, Prem, the leagues, they couldn't come to an arrangement to protect the players by reducing the number of fixtures in this condensed mm -hmm. season. So the buck's been passed to the individual league to say, OK, you've still got to play all the games that you were going to mm. play before, but now you've got to find a better way to manage them. That's the fundamental issue. The, 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 this fixture list is ridiculous as a starting point. We're trying to make that work from this position. And the five sub... OK, I understand completely what Jurgen Klopp's saying, but how many substitutions did he make in Liverpool's last Premier League game? One. Two. Oh. Yeah. He made two at Manchester City. How many did Guardiola make when he was losing 2-0 at Tottenham, two. They're not even making the three changes that they've got available at their disposal. And the game that always sticks in my mind was actually an FA Cup game. I went and covered Norwich Manchester United last season. And 
we were still kind of getting used to the um, you know the absence of fans, and 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 that obviously is more keenly felt, I think, in the FA Cup generally because of the you know the the, the competitive environment, the increased away allocation, all of that sort of thing, the underdog going against the big team. But it was just that was a case of where United were terrible, but they just kept throwing on players, and you saw you <laughs> yeah. saw literally Norwich just tiring and tiring, falling deeper and deeper. United were just throwing more and more players on, and eventually they get the win that they need. And that, to me, distilled this whole argument down perfectly in terms of the impact that it's going to have. And of course it will get through because I think enough of the clubs will think, well, fundamentally it's better if we've got more players available. And obviously the big clubs will all be pressuring the others to support it. And there's a lot of conversations like that going on at the moment in terms of financing and all of the, the bigger sort of wider structure of the game. So this falls within an element of that. But there's no doubt at all that this is a big big advantage to the clubs with deeper squads. It just makes perfect sense to me. By, by the way, J James, is, James is right. The, 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 the problem is the fixture list. The problem isn't the substitution. So yes, play welfare has got to be central, but the only way to solve it is actually to play fewer games. I, do, I did have an idea on the substitutes. If we must have five subs, why not make the two extra subs that you're allowed? They have to be players from your youth team. They have to be homegrown players, players you developed in your academy. To stop, as James said, and I was at that Norwich game, just throwing on, well, you know, Galactico after Galactico until you finally break down a smaller team. John, Rich I listened to, to some of that, but I do think there's a, another element which doesn't get taken. On a match-by-match, -match, individual match basis, having extra substitutes unquestionably benefits the stronger sides. But say we're in mid-December in match seven, of, or six of this ridiculous night, 10 this last weekend, New Year's, New Year's Day, rather. Aston Villa are 3-0 down with 20 minutes to go at Man City or whoever they're, they're playing. They've used three substitutes. They can't use any more. Watkins injured and are out for four weeks, five weeks. Villa can't replace those. Even in January, they can't replace those. So on a match-by-match basis, individually in the game, it benefits the bigger clubs with their depth of resources. But over, I think, a longer stretch, having the ability to take off and rest your key players when a match is won or lost will benefit disproportionately the smaller clubs who don't have those resources because they cannot afford to lose those players. And those players will always play every minute otherwise because they're so important to those teams because Villa aren't going to win games without Grealish and Watkins. I mean, obviously, this weekend they didn't win with Grealish and Watkins, but they easily could have done because the key players. So it's also part of the, the global overall picture that has to be looked at. Um, John Richardson, um, writing in the Sunday People exclusive, saying, no surprise from Chris Wilder, that it's completely selfish what's happening from the top six. But, Jonathan, it passes this week, do you think? The five-sub rule comes in anyway? Well, I think, I think it has to go to the next Premier League meeting, and there isn't one scheduled until... Uh, well, it's not, not one in the diary, as I understand it, so we might be talking about next month. Um, it will go through, I, I, I guess, because there's, you know, the, the clubs are going to go with their managers. There's already 15 to five. It will get waved through, and 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 yes, the big clubs 
usually get their way. It's refreshing for Chris Wilder to just stand his ground and, and have his own opinion. As I say, I think there's a way to do this without it just being about um, benefiting the big clubs. And that would, that would be to, to look at what the issue is. Player welfare, okay. It's about throwing on another body, put on one of your youth players. I think there's also, Roy Hodgson actually made a really good point about the integrity of the league, that if you started the season with three subs, then you're increasing it to five. Does that not actually change the competition significantly enough to suggest the integrity has been called into question across all 380 games? I think that's quite an interesting point to raise. If, yeah, it's a good question, in which case you've got to take away Liverpool's league title, because that's what they did last season, with nine games to go. That's they've true. already done it once. They've set the, they've, they've changed the rules already. You know, I mean, I agree the argument, actually. It's a perfectly valid argument, except we've already done it. So we've crossed the Rubicon. Right. Contentious. I was also going to ask about um, Gareth Southgate suggesting with the Winter World Cup, which marked uh, two years on Saturday until it kicks off remarkably right on the back of a Euros. Wasn't there a perfect opportunity to change the calendar? Wasn't that a massive opportunity miss James yeah well this was something they did discuss during the original lockdown was um one of the more radical proposals was to essentially start this current season so 2021 in January so that actually you could have given the players a proper break at the end of this season had a transfer window okay it would have been quite a long lag but then to say right we start in January and then we have a January to what would have been October season and then a November-December break for two years in a row that obviously the, the World Cup would then slot straight into. And you could have had your Euros then as well um, in, in the November and December 2021, that would have been. So there was an opportunity for it, but it would have, it would have made a radical... It would, it obviously, it represented a huge shift from where we are now. And I don't think there was the bravery, firstly, to do it. And secondly, I think there was just too much pressure um, to get football back on as soon as possible rather than even contemplate finishing the season whenever it was going to happen at that stage and then have a long hiatus where clubs were thinking well actually some of them will have borrowed against next season's season ticket revenue they'll have already been planning you know expenditure based on the season starting in August or as close to it as possible and and, and there wasn't the groundswell of support for it but there, you know if there was ever going to be a chance to shift the calendar radically that that was it. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We've uh, had a very long first half, <laughs> let's say that. Um, and first of all, but before we go into that break, I'm going to ask you if you give us a little bit of an insight of any story that you've seen either behind closed doors or in these strange times to give a bit of an insight into the situation we're in now or any story you didn't, we call it the copy casualty, any story that you didn't have room for that you think brought a really nice insight into the game. We're going to start with you, James. Well, I know this is supposed to be light-hearted, but I'm going to make it vaguely serious or semi-serious because uh, the, 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 the moment that... I think we've got used to behind... I've done a lot of behind-closed-doors games now, and you kind of get used to this sterilised atmosphere to some extent. But the last post being played um, in, an, in an empty stadium... And I, and I went to a few stadiums where it was done, and I think it was the Emirates where they they sort of played it through the, the, the PA system. It wasn't just a you know a musician at the, at the stage at the stage um, at the side of the pitch. And it was the fact that it was reverberating around an empty stadium just made it so much more poignant as a moment, what it represented, the lives lost, 
and just the emptiness, it really kind of brought that moment home for me. Uh, and, and I wasn't expecting it. It kind of knocked me over a little bit. I completely agree with that. And it was also the round, the round of applause um, in, in celebration of Ray Clements's, um life yesterday. It's particularly, particularly just very sad when the fans can't be there to Mark and his family couldn't be there and the legends that we've lost. Martin? I think what uh, the last eight months have shown is the sheer scale of the fear and loathing amongst Premier League chairmen um, of each other. Mm. <laughs> 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 um, it's another lockdown thing, but just a little detail that's been sort of rattling around my head um, since it was a, a player mentioned it to me was that is it, when you go to Old Trafford in these times, um, as, a, as an away team, you have to tra- you have to you have to change in a porter cabin and then walk into the stadium to play. And it's it, it's just got me thinking. I'm fascinated. All these great stadiums and great grounds that, because of COVID, um, a compromise. I think at Chelsea you change in a hotel, and I, I just love to. Uh, you know, we know that teams are not able to eat together at the moment or are having to travel on separate buses, two buses or three buses to a game, and I just love to give a player, uh, I think Steve Bruce yeah. did a diary, of, uh, like a video diary of the 92-93 season. I want a Premier League player to have a little video camera, go behind the scenes and just show us all these kind of like, here's our Porta Cabin at, at Old Trafford, here's our hotel room at Chelsea and, and all the other weird and strange things that they're having to do because of COVID. So many odd ones. The one example of that that I, I thought if only um, someone had left a dictaphone behind was at Villa Park because actually um, the visiting team are using what used to be our press um, our press room and our dining area as their dressing room. So when Liverpool were being absolutely crucified by Aston Villa, I was like, if only someone had left a dictaphone at half time. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do as Jose Mourinho did and, and clap you off into the break. And um, join us back on the other side where we put the world to rights and no naming any chairman, I promise. You're all safe. Welcoming you back to Be In The Know. You are joined today by Jonathan Northcroft, the Sunday Times football correspondent, James Ollie, the senior football writer for ESPN, and Martin Lipton, chief sports reporter for The Sun. Let's look to Leicester. Brendan Rogers, can he do it again? A lovely article by Jonathan in the Sunday Times on Mendy, the overnight sensation who really wasn't an overnight sensation. (laughs) He spent four years vacationing, Mm. not quite, in the south of France. Tell us his his remarkable story and why you think he has been above Jamie Vardy, Leicester's Player of the Year. It's just an amazing tale, really, that this guy arrived as a record signing to replace... N'Golo Kante, that was his first problem because he's a slightly different player, was injured 45 minutes into his first game, which he he started really well, but against Arsenal, terrible ankle injury, which left a a sort of bit of bone floating around in his joint. And then the sort of nightmare began. He had two years where he was in constant pain. He just couldn't, he said he couldn't even, you know, turn properly in training. Everything was was painful. Um, Went back to Nice on loan, his old club, hit rock bottom because he, he he was terrible there. You know, uh, he thought about giving up the game, thought he was never going to play without pain again. Had a, had a second operation, which, which solved things. And then took two more years to sort of come back and establish himself at Leicester. Various things 
and he played for Claude Puel, but then Puel was sacked. Um, Brendan Rodgers wanted to go in a different way with Yuri Thielemans and, and Didi. And we got to the summer, uh, four years into his career, he'd started 23 out of 150 games or something like that. And um, just seemed one of those guys that was going to pass through the Premier League. Um, and then because of this packed season, Brendan Rodgers was looking at, well, we need a bigger squad. This guy's actually okay. We'll give him another chance. And my goodness, he's he's taken it. And and uh, he has been absolutely outstanding. Uh, a bit like Hoiberg, slightly less sort of rugged player, but he sets a tone for Leicester. Very efficient, sits in front of the back four. Um, moves the ball very quickly, which is important. Um, positionally really good. And he's a lovely sort of shy kind of character who has been through a lot spent a lot of that time you know lonely explained you're, you're at a new club when you're at a new club in a different country but you're not playing you're only half there you know you're in the physio room the whole time you don't get to know the other players his wife was having a baby she was back at home he talked sort of going back to his empty house and just phoning France and and just trying to trying to speak to his family to get him through it um going back to France at weekends when the rest of the team was playing just to just to, just to see everyone, you know, became more of a tourist than a football player. And, uh, and here he is on the pitch. And it's just a lovely, he's a lovely, humble guy who deserves everything he's got. Uh, and, and he's what a player he's turning into for Leicester this season. James, you're talking about a nice article by Tom Colomossi in the Daily Mail about James Madison. Do you think with that quality of players with the likes of Vardy that they can really put on a big title challenge, not even the top four now? It's such an unpredictable season. And Brendan just seems to seems to really have the belief and the the collective the hesitation is what happened at the end of last season is the way that they fell away because you, you sort of thought for all the world that they were going to be top four at worst and then clearly um you know they, they slid out right on the final day even literally on the final day losing to manchester united so there's there's a concern maybe about how how they'll see the course out but certainly they play with um, I mean, I don't see them as much as Johnny does, I'm sure, but, you know, they play with a maturity and a composure. I thought I saw them beat Arsenal at the Emirates and there was kind of an inevitability about that. The longer the game went on, they just, they, you know, they, they don't play as a team that fluked a title. They play as a team that still has the um, composure and, and, and the sort of, it still resonates that they know that they can get over the line in big games. They don't always do it, clearly, as evidenced by last season. But, um, you know, Jamie Vardy is sort of evergreen, you know, would, would be probably in the England team or certainly vying with Harry Kane uh, if he was still available for international duty, if he still made himself available. And, yeah, they've got a lot of attacking talent, a lot of strength and depth. It's a very well-balanced squad, I think, from... Um, from the outside anyway and, and you know they've certainly got everything there to challenge in, in what looks like being a very unpredictable season I think if we're talking about Tottenham as serious contenders then you wouldn't have Leicester far behind them on what we've seen so far Jonathan we say that about Leicester what about Manchester United Oli Gunnar Solskjaer saying even their win at the weekend wasn't good enough the performance wasn't good enough can they be title contenders not this season I don't think um I, I, I've been surprised, to be honest. I thought they were going to progress this season. I, I was a fan of what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had done in his first 18 months when others doubted him. 
But I have to say the progression hasn't been there this season. They, they actually look like they've gone backwards. They're as reliant on Bruno Fernandes as ever. Um, still not great in terms of overall build-up play. Um, I can't see the development coming from Martial. Greenwood's not playing at the moment, and he looked like he was going to have a big season. Um, and they just look like a team that are going to, be at best, push for that top four, but um, they, they look a long way behind some of the bigger clubs. Can they put something together for the Champions League, for a knockout competition like that, do you think? Well, Solskjaer's formula of, of, of you know, that, that extreme counter-attacking game against really good teams does give them a chance in, in Champions League um, football, at least to get through the latter stages, to get the knockout. But I, I can't see it happening all the way because it's just, as I say, the, 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 there's not enough there. There's, there's not the, 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 the not enough um, goals. Apart, there's not enough creativity apart from Fernandes. And I don't like the defence. And, and they're, just, they're just drifting a bit at the moment, United. Martin Lipton, one team not drifting. Chelsea, Timo Werner, absolutely flying, much as Frank Lampard would. Mendy, brilliant in defence. We've seen how much Frank Lampard is improving players, something maybe that's not happening at United with Kurt Zuma. Can they go on a majestic Champions League run? Chelsea love this competition. Lampard loves this competition. Could you see them surprising everyone and going maybe into a semi-finals? Absolutely, yeah. I think they've got the biggest problem in the whole squad sorted out by the goalkeeper, who's given them confidence defensively. They're defending high up the pitch because they trust him now. They didn't trust Kepa. Uh, they have a world of options across the front line in particular. Uh, you know, they've, they've been using with uh, and with Drew just off the bench. A good team, a really good team. James, we've seen the progress that Frank Lampard's side are making with Kurt Zuma also really growing as a player. He's improving players. That's certainly something we've seen. Mason Mount and how well he's he's growing despite and dealing with the pressure of um, the Aston Villa <laughs> hordes of fans saying he shouldn't be playing for England and Jack Greenish should. How, what chance do you give them of? winning the Champions League? Oh, I, th I have to say, I think it's a bit early to be talking about them winning the title. I mean, even Frank himself would say, probably buying himself a little bit of time, I suppose. But, you know, they've, they've, brought, they've spent, I think it was 220-odd million on seven signings. It's, you know, that's, that's a big change to suddenly bed in everybody and become a fluid team that can be the best in Europe. I think we've seen... You know, they started the season scoring a few goals. They then tried to tighten it up defensively and it kind of went the other way. And the goals dried up, but defensively they were a little bit more resilient. And now they look like they've got the balance right. Um, I suppose they're struggling with injuries to some extent. You know, Pulisic was probably the best player um, for Chelsea in the restart and he hasn't been able to play very much at all so far this season. Um, and, you know, sort of one or two fitness issues that they, you know, players that they need to get right. But I think if you look at the way that he's got them set up now, there's a clear pattern uh, to the way that they want to play. And everybody seems to understand their roles very well. And, and when Pulisic is out and somebody else comes in, Werner, I think Werner off the left looks better than Werner through the middle at the moment. I mean, Abraham's coming in, done a great job centrally. 
for them. And I think you contrast that with talking about Manchester United, where it doesn't, we don't really seem to know what the plan is if a team gives them the ball. <laughs> you contrast that with Chelsea, where you know there is a there is there are patterns of play. You can see what they're trying to do, and that should stand them in good stead for the season. Jonathan Pep Guardiola not utilising either Aguero or Foden in that match against mm. Tottenham. People questioning why. Maybe the Champions League is the reason why. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I suppose Foden had his international exposure. Aguero is a concern because it's just taking so long for him to come back. But yes, City have got to make that their obsession. I'm sure it is Pep Guardiola's obsession. They think I think they can. I'm, I'm never so good with the maths, but I think they can seal their qualification if they if they beat Olympiacos this week, and then they can concentrate on 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 the league again. Um, you couldn't, you know, despite the shortcomings that we've talked about. Of course, they can do something in the Champions League. They do have the quality if Pep can just calm down in the latter stages. Um, Martin, looking as well to. The, to Europe, who do you think is ultimately the favourite to win the Champions League this season? I think the team that won it last season. Uh, or despite their weekend draw against Werder Bremen, I think that Bayern Munich are an outstanding side with no obvious weaknesses. Um, and the re reformation, renaissance of Thomas Müller, I think is one of the great stories of 2020. Müller has been just magnificent. Every time I watch him, he looks better and better, which I've didn't think you're supposed to do when you get into your late 20s, early 30s. He's just a revelation. James, do we write off Liverpool now until they bolster their signings in the January window? I don't, I don't think we write them off. Yeah, I was being a bit facetious. Sorry, I wasn't supposed <laughs> to say that. Um, I don't think they've conceded a goal in the Champions League yet for a, for a team that's struggling defensively. Um, yeah, they've still got plenty of qualities to recommend them. Um, I mean, look, it's obviously going to be very difficult for them you know, Van Dyke, we all know the difference that he's made to them defensively. You probably want to see a little bit more, maybe from the front three. They've not quite hit hit their straps as they did last season. Obviously, Salah's got the coronavirus now to overcome. But um, for me, they're still the team to beat domestically, and um, I still think they've probably got the best chance of the English teams to to go further in the Champions League. Jonathan, you did a, do a really nice article on on on, um, on Moneyball, some new technology that might help Jurgen Klopp recruit in January. To be fair, their recruitment's pretty spot on. And what, what was a replacement identified for Virgil Van Dijk and, and now Joe Gomez? There was, yeah. This is a new company called AI Abacus, who um, are trying to use artificial intelligence to help recruitment. And the idea is that. Um, at the moment, most stats, player stats and, and recruitment stats focus on um, being descriptive, telling you what a player has done. And this is trying to use AI to look at what the player could do. So how could they fit, fit into your team? Who could, how could they play in combination with other players or in a particular coach's system? And um, the guy behind it is a guy that founded Prozone 20 years ago. So there's some real credibility there and there's some important industry people involved. Um, Interestingly, at the start of the season, they ran um, their programs and they identified Chelsea's best forward line as being um, Werner on the left, Abraham in the middle, and um, Ziyech on the on the right, which is exactly what Frank Lampard has alighted on uh, and at the start of this fantastic run. When it comes to Liverpool, um, uh, Upamecano has been the the kind of the, the guy people talked about most. 
but the, the computer says it'd be better for them to, to try and sign either Kunde or uh, Jonathan Tarr from the Bundesliga, cheaper options uh, and more suited to the system. So who knows, VAR is now refereeing games, maybe computers are going to do recruitment in the future. James, you've written a fantastic book uh, about uh, one of our leading agents. What did you learn from that about recruitment and the mistakes made all too often by scouting and moneyball techniques? Well, I think the interesting thing with this, with Liverpool, is, is how, how it fits into their existing decision-making process and, and whether they use, uh, use it excessively, whether they would come to rely on it too much and take away the sort of old-fashioned, you know, antiquated, you know, human eye element of it. And, and that was really, um, you mentioned that book, it's, it, we've discussed it a lot with reference to Arsenal and Stat DNA, the company that they bought. And really there was a, a shift away from relying on one man, which is essentially Arsene Wenger to decide who they were going to sign, obviously with the scouting reports from the various people he employed across the, well, across the world, um, to shift away from that to a more numbers-based um, decision-making process and that led to some good signings some not good so, so good signings and really they ended up shifting back towards an idea where okay these are the numbers and yes they help us but they're not going to dictate who we sign and who we decide against so that's the, that's the element of it I think the, you know the best it's it's not an exact science but the best formula really is a combination of the two is you know you want you want um, you know the experts to have their they cast their eye over these players and, and, and work out the chemistry and really get a feel for the character as well, because that's something that numbers can never give you is what kind of character you're buying. Are you getting, are you getting a good player who, who will take advice, who is able to adapt and who will improve, um, but also has the numbers to suggest that he's going to, he's going to train on on a sort of technical level. James and for the future football forum that you attended this week, really looking at how the game can get back on its feet. What was the key news for you that you broke out of that, that you really need authorities to listen to and, and to move forward? Well, I mean, the, you know, the thrust of that, of that meeting it was essentially government trying to knock some heads together to come to an agreement about the, a rescue package for the for football from a financial point of view. Um, and that's, you know, a short-term issue in one regard to get everyone through to the end of the season without any EFL clubs particularly going to the wall. But really, that's a wider problem. And that was an issue pre-pandemic that the distribution of finances throughout the game is is skewed in favour of the Premier League and particularly the bigger clubs. So um, hopefully one of the lessons from a football perspective that's that's learned from, from the coronavirus and, and, and the shutdown of clubs and of matches and of uh, these sort of local community centres as, as football clubs double up as in many cases is, is the importance of the whole pyramid um, you know and, and the need to redistribute the money more evenly and I think one of the things that will come out of that meeting is that the parachute payments as we know them will change um, the details of that I think are yet to be determined but instead of giving you know 200 odd million to the clubs that go down three so you get the money for over three seasons and instead of just giving it to that handful of clubs i think the same amount of money will be redistributed more evenly either throughout the, the whole championship or even throughout the 72 efl clubs um including league one and league two because that doesn't ask anything more of the premier league in terms of giving extra money but what it does is, is redistribute that money more evenly so that you kind of narrow the gap between the championship 
and the Premier League and also you support those clubs at the lower end of the pyramid as well. A big international week behind us. We'll touch on it. Scotland qualifying for the Euros. Jonathan, a wonderful night. It could not have been more dramatic, could it? Oh, my goodness. I thought I was too old to feel uh, that gut-wrenching horror uh, of, of a penalty shootout and so much was at stake and, and the joy. I mean, I just felt like a fan again. It, it, I've, had, I've supported two really kind of poor teams for a lot of my life. Um, uh, you know, my, my, Aberdeen were magnificent when I was a kid and then for 30 years they've been rubbish and Scotland have, for 20 odd years not got to the finals. So it just felt incredible. But the, the biggest thing I took away, apart from um, just getting there, was how well Scotland played. They played really well against a good side um, in, in Belgrade, um, controlled that, that match. We've got some really good players now. It's not just all about Andy Robinson, Robertson now. There's... You know, and that's all about McGinn. They've got a great forward, Lyndon Dykes, who's going to come and terrorise England at the Euros. Can't really, can't really play much, but he's an incredible athlete and competitor. He's going to, he's going to be a star of the Euros. And um, we can do something. We held our nerve in that shootout. The penalties were magnificent, um, and uh, the draws favourable. So you know, on on we go to <laughs> the next summer. And a great adventure. No, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm just over, I'm overjoyed. It just feels like a huge weight off the whole nation's shoulders. I don't think the commentators had much faith though, because when, it, when extra time had finished, they were, it was, it was just, they, everyone was so upset. It was so typically Scottish though that you know to concede in the 90th minute. I think the whole, all of us, we've seen the movie so often. We just thought, here we go again. And that's why coming into the penalty shootout, you're just braced for, for heartbreak. But you're, you're right, Martin. It's, it's, it's obviously our format. I should, um, I should, I should report that uh, I was at Wembley that night. And um, when, uh, when, when Scotland had qualified, the moment was greeted by, I don't know where it came from, because obviously there's not supposed to be anyone in the stadium or only a select number of people. But there was a cluster of people right over the far side from the press box who gave up this big cheer. Now, it might have been the FA marketing <laughs> department who know that they've now, you know, got onto a winner. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was even celebrated in a small corner of Wembley. Scotland can win this, can't they? Scotland, England. It's it, 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 it's all set up, Carrie, because England play Croatia in their first game. Tough match, probably get a draw. Scotland beat the Czechs at uh, at Hamden, bounce into to Wembley, uh, in control of the group, putting England <laughs> in the first game. <laughs> Breaking on them, Lyndon, Lyndon Dykes going through, scuffing the ball in in the 90th minute. Of course they can win it. Name on the trophy. James, you asked uh, Gareth Southgate a very poignant question. Are you, are you still enjoying this job or how are you managing with it? Because it has been, what has been thrown in him, thrown at him this year has been quite simply above and beyond. I was speaking to Andy, who his, his communications uh, manager and he said please can we have a quiet a quiet international week two weeks and and I said well you kiss of death then and then the chair Greg Clark steps down in a in a scandal were you surprised at how honest he was in his reply well I think a lot of that was actually I think in a way it was more interesting what he didn't say than, than what he did say in that you know he didn't answer the question both times I put it to him but you know, about fundamentally if he's still enjoying it I think I think we've seen for the first time maybe that one or two of the sort of um, 
excesses that have consumed previous England managers, the external elements outside of the, you know, the, the, the white lines are, are starting to get to him a little bit. I think that, um, you know, he was reticent to take the job initially in 2016 because he'd seen what happened to some of the predecessors, um, some of the managers that he played under. Um, and even when he was talking um, the other week, he was, he was mentioning, you know, Bobby Robson and, Obviously, Terry Venables, who he played under, you know, um, you know, managers Glenn Hoddle, who, who and then ended up leaving the job. Nothing really to do with with the actual football, or at least the football was only one element of it. Um, and if you look at the last twelve months, really, it's for the, it's the first period where Gareth actually had to deal with anything like that. I mean, he, he you know he came into the job, expectations were probably as low as they've been in a very long time. Um, he had a relatively smooth passage through to the World Cup. The World Cup was a was a fantastic experience for, for all of us. Um, the team exceeded all expectations there. They then backed that up to some extent with a good run in the Nations League. And it's only really last November when, when the Joe Gomez and Raheem Sterling spat in the canteen at St George's Park. That was the first moment where we suddenly thought, oh, actually, there's, there's, there's a little bit of an issue in the camp that he's got to deal with. And that internal element there just triggered a chain of events then that then compounded one after the other where he had the Phil Foden, Mason Greenwood coronavirus breach in Iceland. He's had the, I know Harry Maguire was on holiday, but still he, he called him up for his England squad and then had to drop him after he was arrested and subsequently charged in and found guilty in Greece. I know he's, he's uh, appealing that decision, but it just feels as though one thing after another, then as you say, with Greg Clark resigning as well, and then Gomez breaking down, I think some of the, you know, some of the issues around his um, relationships with club managers, well, every England manager has to deal with that. That's part of the course, but it's all of the noise around the team and all of those sort of external issues where the press conferences become dominated by things other than the football that I think really turns him off the job. And although he's got a contract through to 2022, there is a part of me that wonders whether maybe next summer, if it doesn't go well, if there's a bit of pressure, whether he would stay in the job. It's just just a feeling, nothing concrete at this stage. But I just think we've seen the first signs of someone who's so genial, so gracious, so accommodating with his time, just fraying at the edges a little bit. You know, the main thing that would keep him in that job is, is the... Um, the potential that's in the squad you know these are these are a lot of young players who are going to get better and he, you know even in this recent international break he's sort of talking about a lot of those players peaking in three four six years time maybe but they're obviously going to be better in 2022 than they are now and so I, I wonder if if there is a positive showing at the Euros that he probably will stay on but I just I just think if there's a if the, if it's in doubt and there's a period where he has to fight for his job I, I just wonder whether he's still got the, the, the sort of depth of the hunger to, to carry that fight and continue that fight that maybe he had a year or two ago. Jonathan, he has talked about thinking that the World Cup is his best chance to win um, a major tournament. And he talked to me at the Qatar marked two years ago on Saturday to the countdown. And I, when Phil Foden and, and Mount and, and Rice is a, Ollie Holt writes a really lovely article about him and how, what he provides to that packed midfield. Um, Sean, I said, is that what you were talking about? And he said, yeah, that perfect mixture of the talent that's coming through. Do you, do you see that? Do you see why he thinks Qatar would be the place to be? Yeah, there's a lot of buy-in between Gareth and his players uh, on a personal level. And he does see this. He always talks about development beyond 
um, the, 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 this next summer and, and, and that phase. And, and I know the FA like to play down the, the old Greg Clark clock ticking down to 2022, but I've always had a sense that they've actually enacted that, that that has been an obsession, getting a team ready for 2022. And, um, and, and yes, those players are going to be, um, maybe not at the peak, but entering their peak come that tournament. Um, and I would, there's a big sense of duty with Gareth. I think he feels a duty to them. So, like Martin, I'd be surprised if if he if he went before then. Uh, the thing that could change it, of course, is an offer, and he has been linked with Manchester United at various times. I think an offer would 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 would, would at least give him something to think about for all the reasons that James is talking about. But again, is Gareth Southgate the kind of man who walks away from his country because of the decency and all that kind of stuff? Not sure. So I think he'll be there in 2022. I hope he is. I, I hope he is. I think he's, you know, I don't, I think for the first time he's getting a little bit of criticism for his tactical um, decisions because I think, you know, we, I think a lot of us bought into the switch to 4-3-3 after the World Cup and, and the way that that accommodated the attacking players that he had at his disposal and they were scoring goals for fun, albeit against um, sort of the lesser lights of European football. But, you know, there are questions maybe about whether 343 is, is is getting the best from the, from his squad but i i certainly don't understand where some of the darker corners of social media are coming from with, with the criticism of him as a manager and, and and the job that he's done i mean it's been incredible uh, and you know he continues to take that team forward i certainly hope he does uh, stay to 2022 but I, I, as i say and i think you're right i think you're absolutely right about the sense of duty i just feel with him he's just it's just the the the, the the treacle he's having to wade through is starting to, to tire him a little bit, you know. Shouldn't we wait until he actually picks his first team with that system before we decide whether it doesn't mm. work? Actually have everyone yeah. available to play. Yeah. yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that the first signs of it have not been great. And, and actually although we're talking about all the issues, the off-field issues you had to deal with, fundamentally, the football hasn't been that good. So it's sort of taken away a bit of the focus from the fact that, you know, they haven't been scoring a lot of goals. They, they you know, they, they obviously took one point from six against Denmark. Um, you know, OK, they, they, they beat Ireland, they scored some goals against Wales, but really there wasn't a lot, um, you know, to, to, to recommend them in, the, in that system. So, yeah, of course, that's, that'll be the time when we'll, um, we'll judge them properly, when he's got everyone available and he gets a run to games. But we don't know when that'll be. Probably won't happen until the finals. <laughs> well, we certainly put the world to rights. Before we go, I would like you to tell us your unsung hero, the player who you do not think gets enough column inches, who, or maybe you've just got a bit of a sporting crush on at the moment, perfectly allowed. We're going to have to keep it quick, though. I'm going to start with you, Martin Lipson. I think Solly March is a really, really good player. I've been impressed with him for quite some time. Um, and I think he doesn't get any credit at all. And I think he should. And Potter does for trusting him as well. But I like Solly March. This is why I love this, because they come up and you're like, yes, yes, I agree. Jonathan. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm going to go for an old centre-half um, like myself. Um, but it's, it's not exactly a new player. Toby Alderweireld, we mentioned him earlier. Um, and it's not, it's not as if he's, like, unsung. Everyone knows he's great. But I think older players sometimes get to a point they get taken for granted. And Toby Alderweireld's magnificence gets taken for granted. Not just a brilliant defender and competitor, 
uses the ball so beautifully out of defence. And for me, he actually came before Van Dijk, if we're talking about the evolution of centre-halves in the Premier League. The first to play those huge raking passes as well as he does. Brilliant yesterday, a real warrior. And I, I was marvelled at him yet again when I watched him. Fantastic. James? Uh, I'll pick Sergio Regulon because he his arrival at Tottenham was completely overshadowed by Gareth Bale. They were announced on the same day. Um, and you know, and all the fanfare, all the cameras were pointed at Bale, and and, then, and also there was a left back who you know didn't cost an insurmountable, uh, inconsiderate amount of money at 25 million, but has slotted straight in, has looked like a real progressive modern day fullback, perfectly suited to the Premier League. I'm um, looking forward to seeing how he gets on. Yeah, not by me because I saw I was lucky enough to watch him in Germany. It's just be just an absolute delight to watch, an absolute ferret just running after everything. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much. I love all three of those, so I'm calling that a draw. <laughs> Do stay tuned to be in the know. Thank you to James. Thank you to Jonathan. Thank you to Martin. Subscribe to our podcast. We're coming up on YouTube shortly too. Thanks, guys, for joining us and putting the world to rights. Goodness, we got through a chunk there. You are now in the know.